Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, May the 12th, 2023. A couple of years ago, we had a very distinguished Harvard academic on, the chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology. His name um, is Daniel uh, Lieberman. Uh, and uh, at the time, he had a new book out uh, about running called Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Uh, if I was a runner, I, uh, I would have gone out and done a big run after Daniel Lieberman's talk. He's very inspiring. Didn't get me on, on the racetrack, but nobody can. What Lieberman argued is that we're built to run, even if we're not quite built to run. So are we built to move? Are we built to exercise? That's going to be the subject of our conversation today with a husband and wife team, Kelly and Juliette Starrett, who have a new book out, Built to Move. It came out in early April. It's already a New York Times bestseller, and they are looking horribly fit, joining us from just north of San Francisco, where I am in Marin County. Uh, who wants to start, uh, Juliet or Kelly, in terms of this idea in evolutionary terms? If you were talking with Daniel Lieberman, I'm sure you're familiar with his book, Exercise. It also was a big hit. Are we built to move? Is that how we've evolved as uh, as a species? Who wants to start here? Let me take a swing at this and just say, first, Lieberman is a folk hero amongst our community and family. Um, but we Lovely should... guy as well. On top of being a genius, he was delightfully friendly. Yes. Uh, when he's, he's transcendent ego. What I'll say is, I think the way to think about what the body is supposed to do is not to harken back and... It's maybe useful to look at the big toe or the second toe or the ankle or the Achilles, but really start to ask what is, are the conditions in which a human might feel the best, have the healthiest tissues, have the best brain function. And it turns out that a lot of our essential processes are bootstrapped into moving through the environment. I, we traditionally maybe have done that because we were seeking resources or we were, you know, moving and hunting and gathering or even just sitting on the ground and cooking and interacting. But when we start to view that, then we can start to ask sort of the, the next valence question out. What is essential for our well-being and how more importantly do I fit that into my modern day so that it's not that I'm pining for my paleolithic ways and eating fermented wasp nest soup. It's more along the lines of, hey, we don't really have to do any of the things that we used to do, sitting on the ground and getting up and down, walking, sleeping regularly because we don't have lights, et cetera, et cetera. So where can we begin to find those minimums so that we might feel better? Because if I may, if we use third-party validation to understand our sort of cultural behaviors and the impacts of those cultural behaviors, we're seeing diabetes, ob obesity, uh, injury rates. <laughs> choose, choose anything you want there. And we seem to be trending That's in the wrong combination direction. combination of obesity and diabetes. <laughs> That's actually, I think, I think it's the right term. It's not very funny. I mean, it's, it's funny for us, probably not funny for people who have it. Uh, uh, Juliet, what's it like being married to a guy who can come up with terms just off the cuff, like pining for my pa paleolithic ways? <laughs> He's a scary guy, your husband. 
Well, he, he is, not only looks scary, but he's got a scary mind. It's true. He does have a scary mind. I will say that it's been, you know, we actually are having our 20th wedding anniversary this year. And he, you know, he has continued to make me laugh uh, since day one. So that's got to be part of the magic, I think. <laughs> the, the, in all seriousness, it's become a truism to suggest that we all sit in front of computers and we were designed to move a lot, which explains why we're so anxious, why we're so miserable, why we're where we hate ourselves. What is the connection, Juliet, in your view, between our ability to move physically and perhaps mentally? I think there's a very strong connection. You know, I think our brains and bodies were designed to move. And, you know, thanks to technology and modern convenience and things like commuting uh, and, and, you know, all the time we're spending in front of technology, you know, we really have become very sedentary. In fact, there's a whole new field of research that is called, it, it, that focuses specifically on sedentaryism. That's another word for you. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, what we're starting to see is the downstream impact of all of this not moving. And, you know, the, the key thing that Kelly and I want to make this distinction about is we think we sort of lost our way a little bit in suggesting to people that sitting was bad. I'm sure you heard the phrase sitting is the new smoking. And, you know, we really want to try to help people rethink that, that idea. And in that sitting in and of itself actually isn't bad. We enjoy sitting and we do it every day in, in some amount, but really the goal is to move more. And what we're trying to do with this book and sort of in our work writ large is try to help people figure out ways to add in more movement into their day because we do think it is so ultimately connected to both how we feel in our bodies and then how we're able to function from a you know mental standpoint creatively at our jobs in our relationships and so forth uh kelly you look fit i'm sure you are fit you you're, you're in 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 addition to writing books you you help athletes and all sorts of other people uh move better um are people who are fit, are they able to move more freely and live more fully? Uh, or as the fitter you become, does moving freely become harder in a way because you're, you're so much more, your body is so much more sensitive? Well, I think what we should maybe think about is what is it the human being should be able to do? around just movement. And I think every physician, every physical therapist, every orthopedic surgeon all agrees that the shoulder should be able to go up over its head. We should be able to go behind us. We have some rotation. So we really have some established reference ranges for what the shoulder and what the hip and the knee and the ankle should do. The problem is those things don't really mean much to us. And the body is so robust and capable that we can actually move through our daily environment without actually having to touch any of those end ranges of motion. So suddenly, again, range of motion usually doesn't mean much to people until they're injured or they've got pain or there's a skill that they can't do. So your hypothesis is interesting because what we know is there's a lot of people who get into their 90s who actually aren't exercisers. If we look at the blue zones, we look at even anecdotally our own family members. But what we see is that they have a lot of movement practice built in. They do a lot of walking. They get up and down off the ground a lot. They, uh, they're engaged in their communities. They get sunshine. They eat whole foods. There's certainly a, a sort of a, uh, an idea of things that go along with that. But I think what you're hinting at 
is that oftentimes we engage in something that looks like an hour of formal activity or something we love, like biking. And what we say to ourselves is, well, I have checked my health and fitness box and I've taken care of my physical needs because I did this one hour of cardiorespiratory fitness on the bike. But if when we assess the cost of that, the session cost, we can certainly say, well, if you're spending all your time on your bike, you may not be able to put your hip behind you as effectively. And that bike doesn't really ensure that your arms went over your head or that your spine could round or extend or that you could rotate. And ultimately, what we end up seeing is, boy, practices that looked like yoga or Pilates maybe were more complete and at least that they asked the body to be in positions that are suggested by our native range of motion. So your hypothesis is, hey, theoretically, we know that when people have more muscle mass and lean muscle mass and better bone density, they tend to fare and be a little bit more durable as they age. However, I think what we've told people, as long as you exercise intensely, that's enough. And what we're seeing is that that's clearly not enough. So, Kelly, tell me more about the book. As I said, it's already a bestseller, Built to Move, The Ten Essential Habits to Help You Move Freely and Live Fully. Uh, you've written other books in the past uh, around similar themes. What are you trying to do with this book? Well, I think one of the things that I wanted to be polite. Uh, yes. Sorry, I, I meant Juliet rather than Kelly. Uh, well, you know, yeah, I'm standing up for the women, Juliet. Yes, yes. Thank you. You know, I think uh, what we wanted to do with this book is take all of our years of experience working with high-performance athletes and say, what are the lessons that we've learned in those environments that have made those athletes get better, faster, stronger, more agile, win more world championships, more Olympics, more Olympic medals? And how can we take those lessons and actually make them relatable to everyday people? Because one of the things we realized is that even in working with the highest performers, often that subset of people were still sort of leaving what we call the basics behind. And, and in part because there's so much information and so much technology out there in the health and fitness space that it's easy to really get distracted by all the bells and whistles that are possible, you know, tracking supplements. You know, there's lots out there to sort of go down a rabbit hole in. And what we saw is even the best athletes among us were often leaving some of the basics behind. For example, Kelly is currently working with a world champion surfer one of the best in the world. And one of the things we're working with him on is actually making sure that he's fueling enough for his sport and eating enough whole foods to actually be able to manage the load of being a professional surfer. And so what we realized is not only are professional athletes often failing to look at the basics, but that the basics are the same things that everyday humans need to be focused on in their lives. And I'll also add that because we've been in this space for so long, We've, we've also had occasion to try every tool, tactic, strategy we have access and can, you know, ring up any of the, the best coaches in the world to get advice. And it turns out that the things in this book that are really very basic, things like getting up and down off the ground and eating fruits and vegetables and keeping an eye on your range of motion are actually the things that we've learned in our own lives move the needle the most for us. And so we wanted to figure out a way to share that in a comprehensive way with a larger audience and, and beyond the sort of health and fitness, fit, health and fitness enthusiast audience. And if I may add, the only, one of the things that's, I think, unique about our approach is that we've tried to do is create 10 brand new vital signs. I think we saw that people became more comfortable with vital signs in the pandemic. But by giving someone a benchmark, 
it allows us to sort of adjust and understand where we are. So if you went and saw your physician for a physical, I think we can understand that they took blood pressure and heart rate and asked some other questions, but it really doesn't tell us about our behaviors, eating, sleeping, moving. And it doesn't ask us, that physician doesn't ask us about how effectively we can move in our environment. And so instead of saying, hey, good, bad, what we said is hey, here are some benchmarks and let's see how your lifestyle is stacking up. Are you doing the things that are allowing you to sort of check the box and, hey, hey, I'm, I'm covering my minimums or are we uncovering some blind spots so that we can begin sort of a much more cogent, holistic conversation about trying to help people feel better in their bodies? Uh, Juliet. This is my theory, and I'm sure it's wrong, so please correct me. Would it be fair to say that everyone's inability to move is manifested in different ways, particularly in some particular soreness or unpleasantness on their body, often the back, the feet, the shoulders? Does, it, does, does our inability to move, does it tend to, and I'm not sure if I'm using the right words, congregate differently in different bodies and different people? Yeah, I, I would say your hypothesis is correct that it does because we all have different desires to move. The amount that we move is different. And then also what we are motivated to do. I mean, you may love to spend your weekend riding your bike while I want to spend my weekend sitting in my garden. And, you know, what people like to do with their bodies is so personal and so individual. And, you know, one of the things that we like to say is that every physical activity has some kind of session cost. And so if you think about a, a big hard workout one day and you wake up the next day and you're sore, that would be a session cost of the workout from the prior day. And I think what we don't think about is applying that idea of session cost to all of the things we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis with our body, whether that's sitting or traveling or, you know, playing with our kids, you know, whatever it is we're doing with our body is going to have a different cost depending on what we're doing. And so I, I certainly think how it manifests itself in terms of stiffness or soreness or, you know, localized pain can be very different and very individual. Kelly, I don't want to go over all 10, but is uh, because uh, we want people anyway to, to, to read the book. Uh, but what's the role of stretching? Um, I've always been told that stretching was essential. Although I've had conversations with people who've suggested that they've had back problems and the more they stretch, the worse their back problems become. Is, is stretching one of your uh, 10 essential habits? Well, let's define what we mean when we say stretching or in our language, we say mobilization. Theoretically, what we are trying to do when we stretch and stretching is actually very, very safe and at the very least does very little for us at the very most can really change how people experience the world. But ultimately, either through stretching or through mobilizing the tissues, which isn't just stretching, sort of pulling on them passively or actively, hoping that we make some change. Mobilizing might be, hey, we're changing how some of the structures articulate, how the joint capsule works, how the tissues slide. But ultimately, we're trying to restore someone's range of motion. That's the ultimate goal. Or we're trying to, as Juliet said, reduce the session cost. Either if you jump on your foam roller and did a little bit of self-massage, you actually are, the research shows and our experience shows that you'll be less sore the next day. We can actually decrease soreness. So 
ultimately it's okay if someone pulls on something you can imagine just stretching and hey you know i'm a little bit sore the next day that that can be a typical experience the question the problem is people really don't know how to self-soothe with some of the stretching techniques we think we need to do it we sort of give lip service to it we don't really do it enough we don't do it systematically and it's actually hard to actually mobilize or stretch in those quotation marks all the systems of my body but one of the things that we have been advocating for for a long time now is that people learn to begin to take care of their bodies ask themselves hey what's stiff what hurts and it turns out if you have just a simple ball and a roller you can really make yourself feel better and begin to restore a lot of your range of motion in your home we can begin to rewild and sort of disrupt the con this kind of industrial complex and just give people some really simple tools where they can feel better very quickly so what i would say is stretching can be a very powerful tool but let's put it in the context of all of the available techniques and systems that we can use to either manage pain ourselves or restore a range of motion or enhance our recovery your book suggests that um uh, that it's written for exercises and non-exercises alike. But in terms of these 10 essential habits, are they all the same, whether or not you go to the gym two hours a day, uh, Julia? You know, they really are what, you know, we actually sought to not write an exercise book. We obviously love exercise. We do it on the very regular, you know, that's how we find we, you know, spend our free time and how we probably. Yeah, you are an advertisement, <laughs> a visual advertisement for Marin County outdoors life. Okay? You're, you're never off your bicycles. We are, we are in our bicycles on the weekend. You are right. But you know, what we found and, and what we think the data is starting to show is that while exercise is extremely important for a variety of reasons, physical and mental, and I'm sure you've had many other guests who talked about that, but what we've seen has happened is that people have gotten the message they should exercise and they are doing it and they're spending billions of dollars every year on nearly a trillion, and, nearly a trillion dollars every year on health and fitness apps and gym memberships and you name it. But unfortunately that's not really moving the needle from a, a community health standpoint. We're not getting healthier. We're not feeling better in our bodies. We're not less depressed. And so what our theory is, is that while that exercise is of course important and critical, that there are actually 23 other hours of the day in which we also should be mindful of our health in really small ways. And in terms of things like getting more movement, making sure we're keeping an eye on how much protein we're eating, you know, making sure we're keeping an eye on our balance, especially as we age. And so, you know, we think a lot of these practices are independent of exercise. And there are days as two working parents running two businesses where we actually lose our chance to do formal exercise. But what we found is if we make sure we walk enough and do some mobility work and eat vegetables and get a good night's sleep, we actually feel pretty good and we can really maintain a level of fitness without actually having to set foot in the gym every single day of the week. And especially if we get busier time crunched. Kelly, um, you mentioned obesity earlier, depending where you are, there aren't any fat people in Marin County. I'm not sure they're allowed, but elsewhere in the country, there are many terrible manifestations of, of obesity. And, and, and there is a new, I guess, generation of drugs designed to address these issues. In terms of your uh, uh, 10 essential habits, uh, is there a role for drugs in terms of enabling us to have 
stronger, healthier, younger bodies, or are you a bit ambivalent about that? You're still far from Silicon Valley here, I guess. Let's say that there's certainly a, absolutely a case when people's health is negatively impacted by some of the environmental loads on the system. We can't talk about obesity and not talk about food scarcity. We can't talk about stress. We can't talk about race. We can't talk about the programming inactivity. There's a whole lot of things that can go towards years and years and years of sort of, you know, aggregation of weight. But what we find though, is if I give someone a, a solution and then a lot of these drugs um, like Ozempic, you know, and I'm not an Ozempic expert, I'm just a physical therapist, but our understanding is that they basically turn off a lot of our drive to eat. And the problem with that is that now it's great that I'm eating fewer calories, but I may not be nourishing myself appropriately. And the research is starting to show that people are losing a lot of lean muscle mass, which is actually really difficult to put on. And so if I under eat because I, I get full fast from this drug, then what ends up happening is that we actually have a malnourished generation. And theoretically, if people are going on this drug for years and years, that's going to, you're going to see that we're going to have a health crisis of, of sarcopenia and osteopenia where people are really losing a lot of the integrity because they're simply not getting a drive to eat. So there's something there. So one of the things I want to talk about is what we consider walking to be sort of one of the foundational practices that makes humans really effective. And that might surprise people. And it's not getting 10,000 steps. The research is that if you hit this 8,000 step mark, you really can start to see and benefit from the lion's share of all the wonderful things that happen, including a 50% reduction in all-cause mortality. If you just walk 8,000 steps a day. We how like much that eight, is, I mean, that 8,000 steps is, of course, 8,000 steps, but is, how many miles is that? You know, I think it's about three total miles. So yeah. I, probably I would need to do the an math hour, maybe a little over an hour a day of walking. Yeah, yeah. You, could, you could think of it that way. And more importantly, as we want to highlight for people, is that this doesn't all have to happen in, in sort of a single unit, that we have sort of become conditioned to say, well, if I can't go walk for an hour, I'm not going to walk at all versus how do I spread out my movement and create a movement rich environment, have a movement practice throughout the day. But the research is also showing that people who don't, people who don't struggle with their weight tend to have higher non-exercise activity levels. So it may not be that the exercise is the, the key to calorie control, but it may means that one of the most powerful mechanisms of calorie control is to continue to move more in your, in your day. When we then combine that with better sleep, getting people more nutritious foods, as in we're eating more fruits and vegetables and up your protein, turns out we can kick out some of those negative behaviors. So we're much bigger fans of instead of restricting and telling people what they can't do, we say, hey, let's flood the system with things we want you to do. And then let's see how that wholesale makes the changes in you and your family. Ke Kelly, um, uh, sorry, Juliet, uh, Kelly mentioned um, sleep. How important is sleep? Is it one of the habits? It is one of the vital signs in our book, and we consider sleep to be what we call a keystone habit. And it's it's sort of the, the habit from which all other good habits flow, if you can think about it that way. You know, people who sleep enough and sleep well tend to have more motivation the next day to exercise. They tend to eat more fruits and vegetables and, you know, generally have a better diet. They're more creative and functional at work. They have better relationships. They're they less, less likely to eat candy. Less chronic pain. Less chronic pain. Less likelihood to injure yeah. yourself. Yeah. So there's, so, you know, we are, um, 
evangelists of the importance of sleep. And in our view, you know, seven hours is really the minimum um, for survival. And, you know, there are people who get very focused and, and their identity is really connected to, you know, thinking that they can sleep a lot less. But the research is really not there on that. Most people need seven to nine hours of sleep. And in our opinion, if you want to grow muscle, get stronger, compete in a sport, recover from a surgery, lose weight, lose weight, you know, uh, any number of things that that number is really eight hours. And one of the things we have learned from years of actually being able to test and try things like, you know, sleep trackers is that all of us actually naturally can lose up to an hour of sleep a night. And that's normal from, you know, waking up to use the bathroom or, you know, variety of different reasons we wake up in the night and, and often aren't even conscious of that. So what we recommend is that people actually make sure they're laying in bed for a whole hour longer than they want to sleep to make sure they're getting enough sleep. But I mean, we cannot underscore the importance of sleep in terms of being this single behavior that will make all of the other vital signs in this book more likely to happen. Let me, let me connect those two things. One of the things, the way to think about each one of these vital signs chapters creates a constellation of behaviors and these all one of the problems in the past is that we become very siloed this is my sleep book this is my nutrition book this is my exercise book and we fail to appreciate how these these aspects of our physical lives integrate into a systems approach a systems whole so one of the reasons we're huge fans of walking is that clinically we found out that we know that people who tend to walk more accumulate enough non-exercise activity that they increase what's called sleep pressure. So in some of our work with the military, one of the things that we found out is that some of these elite military groups were prescribing 12 to 15,000 steps a day to actually help people fall asleep. So if I walk more during the day, I'm more likely to go to sleep. And again, what's nice about having this sleep organization as a, as a principle, that means that maybe we end up cutting up our caffeine about 12 or 1 because we don't want to impact the quality of our sleep. And so we start to see that with these foundational principles, people can begin to make decisions in the context of their own busy lives about sort of saying, hey, I need to pay attention to this and at least bring awareness so that I'm just not blundering through my life, wondering why I don't feel the way I think I should be capable of feeling. Uh, Juliet, you've mentioned, both of you have mentioned the importance of eating a lot of fruit and vegetables in terms of moving better. Uh, are there particularly bad foods, processed foods, foods which are uh, particularly uh, um, dominated by uh, salt and, and sugar, rich in salt and sugar? You mean tasty foods? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the foods that taste good. All you the know, stuff I mean we love. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I'd like to point out is that I consider myself to be like a survivor of diet culture, having started when, you know, I was in college. Veteran the of fat, the diet wars. I'm a veteran of the diet wars. I started with a fat-free diet in the early 90s and have tried literally every diet and eating style since that time. And, you know, one hallmark of all of those diets is that they're all about restriction, whether it's restriction of processed foods or certain sugars or even things like fruits and vegetables, which is one of the ways we really lost the forest through the trees as an industry by restricting, you know, telling people that eating a banana was going to cause them a problem. And so, you know, from my perspective, I'm, I'm reluctant to really demonize any particular kind of food. And instead, our, our view and our, our approach in this book, Built to Move, is to suggest that people eat 800 grams of fruits and vegetables a day. However you want, whether that's all fruit, all vegetables, it actually includes things like white potatoes and beans, and that you meet your protein minimums. And then beyond that, if, you know, 
every so often you're eating some processed foods or having a glass of wine at dinner with your friends, that's probably not going to be the limiting factor. If you're approaching your day and nourishing your body and eating enough fruits and vegetables and protein, the other thing that we love about this approach is that it's actually a lot of food and you're going to be satiated if you focus on eating this way. And so you're going to be less likely to reach for processed foods and sugary beverages and all the things that are sort of easy access to us all the time. It's cherry season right now. Right. <laughs> and if you went out and ate a pound of cherries, which would cover which we over don't half, recommend. We don't recommend. You could do that once. Huh. So it might be disastrous. nothing wrong with a pound of, especially right. uh, good cherries. That's right. right. I mean, yeah, the, the, the season only lasts a month, so you might as so well enjoy it while it's I, on. I, you're not wrong. <laughs> a whole pound of cherries is 230 calories, which is less than in like a large latte. So what we oftentimes see is that we've demonized these things as being high sugar, but really what we have is immense nutrient-dense foods that are we have to eat and we feel full. But lo and behold, an entire you know, flat of blackberries is 210 calories. If you really want to feel decadent, crush you know, a whole flat of blackberries and you're going to see, wow, we really have some built-in calorie control. But Juliet and I are interested in durability. We're not necessarily trying to talk about your body composition that's important yeah well, you're gonna justify uh kelly next time i eat all the cherries at dinner uh, i'm gonna say well juliet and kelly said that that's was okay. right there we go, there we uh, go. For, for, for people who are listening uh both juliet and um kelly uh Starrett are glowing with health and kelly um you are and this is not a suggestive on my part. You're a very buff man. You look as if you're <laughs> not the kind of person would want to mess around with. Uh, in all seriousness, you've obviously done a lot of weights. It, are, are, is weight training another essential habit? I, let's do this. Oftentimes, it's easy to get in the weeds about – we love this analogy about climbing Everest – it's really fun to have very technical conversations about the fastest way up Everest, what food we should take up Everest, which rope we should take, what, who has the best tent. So that's a great intellectual conversation. But our contention is that not everyone is yet at base camp. We have to get everyone to the base of the mountain before we can start climbing the mountain. And certainly it's unequivocal that strength training and cardiorespiratory training, all of those resistant training, however you want to do that, carry a sandbag, jump a jump rope, all those things are, are net positive to the human and have an immense benefit. And we actually prefer a model that looks like something we call never do nothing. So what we'd rather people do is instead of thinking, hey, I have to have this perfect secret squirrel bespoke program for my unique snowflake self, what we want you to do is we need to get some loading in. And that loading could be let's load up a backpack and go hike the stairs. Let's go hike or walk around my neighborhood with 10 pounds on my back. And suddenly what you see is that we can expand the definition of loading my body to be much more inclusive and much more democratic. Unequivocally, exercise is important, but more important because you know we see that people who live very, very long – oftentimes haven't been chronic exercises. You know, those hundred year olds in your family haven't been going to orange theory and doing keto their whole lives. What we find though, is that they've been very active and that these fundamental essentials actually do create a ready state so that if we want to go learn a new skill or we want to know, learn a new pastime or use our bodies in a way, we're actually much more capable. Or if there's more stress coming down from work or family, or we have a fall or an injury, we're much more likely to be able to recover from those things. 
Well, Julia, let's end with you. Uh, Kelly noted that not everyone is at base camp. It's this is a challenge for people who are who 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 are conforming with with many of your habits. This seems obvious, but of course, for those who who don't, it's an enormous challenge. The book is written for exercises and, and non-exercises. A lot of people are going to be buying this book because they want to transform their lives. Uh, so, so Juliet, what, where would you suggest people begin? People who who know they need to work on their body, need to Give them the work on moving better. But 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 how to start this? Once you start, it's so much easier. So I, I would suggest that everybody listening to this, whether they buy the book or not, start with this. Well, piece we want of them home. all to buy. They got to buy the book. <laughs> no, nothing's free in this life. You know, uh, the homework for everybody listening to this this tonight is to actually spend 30 minutes sitting on the floor while you watch TV. Or if you're someone who happens to work from home and have that as an option, you could spend 30 minutes of your workday sitting on the floor and having your computer at your coffee table. But the homework is to accumulate 30 minutes of sitting on the floor. And we think this is so magical because it will give you some information about sort of how you're able to get up and down off the floor, which is a critical skill, especially as we age. And also will give your give your hips a chance to rewild. It's sort of like a built-in mobility practice without thinking. For most people who don't sit on the ground very often, Often it's going to be uncomfortable to begin with. We actually encourage you to continue to change positions, whether you're sitting cross-legged or 90-90 or with your legs forward in front of you, which is called the long sit. There's but no wrong way. There's no wrong way to do it. And it has this beautiful aspect of actually requiring you to get up and down off the ground, which is chapter one of our book, The First Vital Sign, something called the sit and rise test. So I, I would challenge everybody listening to this to have that be their yeah, homework it's, it's tonight. Great sit advice. on the ground. So for anyone who's who's not as fit as they'd like to be and doesn't know how to start, sit on the floor. And, and Kelly, let's end with you. What about the other extreme? What about the hardcore exercises? What can they learn that they wouldn't? already know from your book what have you discovered that um is a, an esoteric secret for everyone uh, except you guys we're finding that a lot of our world's best athletes and teams actually think they're working and outworking the competition but it turns out they can actually work harder and be fresher and when we we actually have handed this book to many world champions and many teams and find that they do indeed have blind spots. One of the things that we have learned is that walking more, even independent of the intense exercise training, helps us decongest our tissues and actually be able to do perform more work later on. The other half of the book is really about vital signs around movement. And oftentimes people don't realize that they have a movement restriction. Juliet happens to be a three-time world champion and a collegiate rower, but she struggles with some of her ankle range of motion. She happened to be the best in the world without having complete ankle range of motion. Yet now she knows that she needs to work on it. If we can help people find their blind spots, then lo and behold, those blind spots get filled in and people feel better and live more self-actualized lives.